boost up my miners of intelligence and consciousness. I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have Dr. Avi Loeb. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. So, I mean, we've got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So I think the best way to do this is kind of, if you could give me a brief, I read your book, by the way, it was, it was fantastic, extraterrestrial, it was great. If you can kind of give the listeners a brief overview of, you know, your life, and I knew you grew up on a farm in Israel, and you, you know, you were in the Israeli military, but if you give us a brief overview of kind of your past, and then we can get into Oumuamua, but sure. I would, I'd like to start there. Yeah, I do think it's important because uh, my adulthood was shaped by my childhood. And uh, I pretty much see science as an extension of my childhood curiosity. It's a great privilege to be able to ask questions. You know, one of the most vivid memories from my childhood was at dinner, I would ask difficult questions and the adults in the room would uh, pretend that they know much more than they actually know in answering the question. I would be upset because it was obvious that they don't really know the answer. That was the good experience. The bad experience was when they would dismiss the question. Uh, and not even answer it. And, uh, you know, what, I tried to fix that by becoming a scientist so that, you know, I will be surrounded by like-minded people uh, who are willing to ask questions and, and answer them uh, using data, using evidence. And I, I must confess that, uh, you know, even nowadays, uh, when I speak to some of my colleagues, they dismiss a question because they don't know the answer to it. And they ridicule uh, a, a, a discussion in, in, on, on some questions that we will discuss later. But at any event, I grew up uh, on a farm, as you mentioned, and uh, I used to collect eggs every afternoon, and uh, that connected me to nature. I really admire nature. Every day um, since the pandemic started, I, I jog at 5 a.m. in the company of birds, uh, ducks, rabbits, and uh, wild turkeys, and I enjoy seeing the sunrise. Every day it's different. Today I saw the moon. It was really amazing. Um, uh, and uh, so, um, you know, the connection to nature is deeply rooted in me because uh, I wasn't a social animal when I grew up. I, I wasn't a city boy. I, I grew up on a farm and uh, I used to drive the tractor to the hills of the village and I, I was mostly interested in philosophy. But then, as you mentioned, uh, I, I was drafted to the military. That's obligatory in Israel. And I had two options, either to run in the fields uh, with a gun attached to my back or to uh, do something closer to philosophy, which was studying physics. I was good at that. And I finished my PhD uh, at age 24 in a military program uh, called Talpiot, where uh, you study physics and mathematics uh, in, uh, in a way that would help uh, the defense of the country. Um, and I developed a project that was funded by the U.S., and that brought me to the U.S. It was funded by the Strategic uh, Defense Initiative back in the 1980s uh, that Ronald Reagan uh, initiated. And uh, as a result of those visits to the U.S., I ended up uh, being offered a, a postdoctoral fellowship at uh, Princeton, the Institute for Advanced Study, where Albert Einstein used to be a professor uh, a few decades earlier. Uh, and um, of course, I couldn't turn it down. It's just like in The Godfather, you know, that was an offer that I cannot refuse. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was conditioned on the fact that I'll switch to astrophysics, which was completely foreign to me. I didn't know much uh, and then I started studying um, astrophysics. I was surrounded by in the company of uh, very smart people that uh, were very competitive. And of course, uh, it was a difficult time for me uh, to learn by myself the vocabulary while others are, you know, already familiar. And I had I had to sort of invent myself. And it always reminded me of uh, there is a tale about uh, Minhausen that a German tale about Minhausen that. Uh, used to, you know, he rode a horse and got into mud and then was able to pull himself out of the mud by his own hand, so to speak, which is impossible. Basically. Yeah, yeah. And so I had to sort of pull myself out of ignorance, you know, knowing nothing about astrophysics and invent myself as an astrophysicist. And I sort of, it took me some years, but it offered me a great advantage of being able to actually define myself in a way that is not 
similar to anyone else, you see. So that that helped in a way. And then, um, you know, I was offered a position at Harvard. And again, I couldn't turn it down. And uh, eventually I was given tenure in astrophysics there and and became the chair of the astronomy department there for, for nine years, the longest serving chair between uh, 2011 and 2020. And uh, at that point, it became clear to me that even though I married, uh, I was married through an arranged marriage by circumstances, I, I didn't really initiate the move to go into astrophysics. Mm-hmm. I'm actually married to my true love because, <laughs> uh, because uh, astrophysics offers some fundamental questions, philosophical questions, that uh, we can address using the scientific method. And so uh, it sort of completed a full circle for me, coming back to deep philosophical questions, but now as a scientist. And I established, for example, in 2016, um, a center called the Black Hole Initiative at Harvard, where uh, I brought together uh, scientists and philosophers that talk to each other. Oh, yeah. that's And that's... um... That's amazing that that you're bringing those two worlds together because one that the philosophical world they spend most of their time in their heads in the science in the scientific world the hard sciences you're trying to bring those thoughts into the real world and and use that in a way that would better humanity so I think that's yeah. awesome that you, that you did that well I, sh- I should say there is an irony in this because um, if you go four centuries back, there was this story about uh, Galileo Galilei that argued that maybe the, the Earth moves around the sun and we are not at the center of the universe. And and the philosophers at the time, of course, believed that we are at the center of the universe, just like my daughters believe that they are at the center of the universe when they were young. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the philosophers were quite brutal. They were not just nice people, you know, at the time, because they had the power. And so they said, we don't want to look through your telescope. We know that the sun moves around the earth. And then they put him in house arrest. Yep. Today, they would have canceled him on social media, obviously. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, the point is, philosophy at that point objected the scientific um, uh, approach, which Galileo founded, which was based on evidence. Look, look through my telescope and figure out the answer, he said. But they mm-hmm. said, no, we know the answer. We don't need to look through a telescope. And, and they put him in house arrest. So, so now, to me, the lesson from this story four centuries later is we should find the answers by looking through our telescopes. Now, you might think, okay, four centuries have passed and everyone would understand that because modern science is supposed to be based on evidence. But what I find is exactly the opposite attitude still. You know, there was, uh, we will talk about this object, Oumuamua, and, you know, several months ago, there was an article published in the magazine Nature Astronomy, a very prestigious magazine. It was written by a philosopher who argued that Oumuamua, this strange object, must be natural, uh, not artificial, based on philosophical reasoning. And that paper was accepted for publication in a prestigious journal. And I asked myself, how is it possible? Haven't we learned something over you know, four centuries of practicing science that we should look for evidence. So through, you know, empirical evidence rather than rely on our mind to give us the answer. And the other thing you see is in physics, in the mainstream of physics, you know, people have all kinds of speculations about extra dimensions, about the string theory landscape, about the multiverse that have no support uh, whatsoever by any experimental Evidence and nevertheless, it's mainstream. So, to me, it sounds like a betrayal of the tradition of Galileo, and and I see it coming back now because you know people are attached to themselves. You know, yeah, they're attached to themselves and their ideas, and and you know what I see. And and again, I'm I'm a layman. I want to just put that right out there. I'm I'm a big dummy, right? I'm kind of a meathead. But like for what I see is is a lot of ego, and people are obsessed with looking really, really smart on the, when these, when you have these abstract ideas, like, oh, look at me, I, I did this. But when someone such as yourself comes up with some very interesting data about Oumuamua, everyone rejects it. And I think part of that is that people are scared of what the implications of that are and the fact that we are, mo- I mean, if you look at the math, right, we're most, it's, almost statistically impossible that we're the only 
in, like life forms in the universe. It's ridiculous, but it's something that we're holding onto. And, and a part of that is we are what dealing with 1.5 million year old software in our brains. And that's a really big and scary concept to think that we might not just be, we might not just be the, we might not be alone, but we might actually be at the dumber end of the spectrum of what's completely possible in the universe. I yeah. mean, the, the difference between us and a chimpanzee, I think, is 1% difference in intelligence. I could be wrong there, but uh, something like that. And then if you go, if you look at it from the other end of the spectrum, something's 1% smarter than we are, that means that their children would be doing advanced mathematics and writing symphonies when they're like two years old, like just to put it in perspective. Yeah, you're completely right. Um, and actually... Uh, we now know that um, something that we haven't known before, that over the past year it became clear that about half of the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And so the, what we see in our backyard, the Earth-Sun system, is not unusual. And uh, why should we believe that we are privileged in any way? Uh, Galileo started this uh, process to demonstrate that we are not privileged. You know, we're not at the center of the universe. We actually move around the sun. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, uh, space missions are based on that. You know, it's uh, nobody would dispute that fact, even though it was popular at the time uh, of Galileo that, you know, that the Earth is at the center, and that's what the philosophers thought. But nobody remembers those guys when we launch space missions. It's completely irrelevant. Reality is whatever it is. So only for a little while you can maintain your ignorance, but eventually it will, you know, come out the way it is. And so if we don't look through our windows for any neighbors, you know, they will not go away. They, they are still out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's my basic point. We should pay attention to, to evidence. And the other thing is, uh, you know, when I teach at Harvard, um, uh, for example, a freshman seminar, the first-year students uh, that come to Harvard, they think that they are extremely smart. And I tell them, you know, that um, half of them are below the median in the class. And um, they refuse to believe that. They get very upset. But this is a statistical fact that the median is defined such that half of the people in the class are below it. That's the definition of the median. So I tell them half of you are below the median of this class and they cannot believe it. Now, what's the lesson of that? The moral of that is, you know, if we are one out of many civilizations, uh, technological civilizations that existed since the Big Bang, you know, around, um, and that is a very likely proposition, you know, maybe many of them have died by now, but, you know, I'm just, looking at the entire yeah. history, if we are one out of many, we're most likely in the middle of the distribution in terms of our in, uh, intelligence. And, uh, and, and, and therefore, we should be modest. You know what? I mean, it, obviously, it, it, it's a problem for our ego. For example, if the Perseverance rover, which is now on the surface of Mars, you know, we are happy for it to look for evidence that there were microbes on the surface of Mars because we can feel superior relative to these microbes. They're not mm -hmm. intelligent. But imagine it bumping into the wreckage of a very sophisticated spaceship that uh, had technologies far in a, uh, better than what we can uh, develop. Uh, it, it, that would be a, a blow to our ego. It will make a lot of people upset. And, you know, and I, I understand that uh, much of the pushback against uh, my uh, work has to do with the ego of people. Yep. The, the other part is people want to, to pretend that they're experts. You know, it's just like those adults in the room that I described at the beginning. Um, they want to argue that everything we see conforms with what they already know. So they are the expert in the field. And if you tell them, look, there is something that doesn't really, you know, like Oumuamua, it doesn't really look like a comet or an asteroid that you have seen before. They say, no, 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 no. It's, it's a natural object because they want to maintain their reputation as the experts. If there is something that doesn't quite match what they already know, you know, again, it, 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 and they didn't discover it, you know, they, they, they would be upset about it because... Apparently, they miss something important about reality. Absolutely, and it does. You know, it doesn't fit their their narrative for what life. You know, their life and and and, and honestly, 
real quick, it would potentially require a new set of physics that we do not have the answer to, which we need new physics. Anyways, if we were going to get off this rock, if you look at the uh, Commander David Fravor, him chasing that Tic Tac, that's a new set of physics. Like, if that's real, that is a new set of physics uh, that we don't have the answers to yet. What, what was that, John? What you oh, I was just going to add, like, speaking of physics, like, um, I am a, a personally just like a big fan of physics and i've read for a long time uh there was a, a a portuguese physicist and i can't recall his name but he was coming up with a theory called variable light speed theory that accounted for the laws of physics especially being the limits of what light speed would be uh, are different relative to what position in the universe you are based on any number of factors and it just seems like any time you're butting up against new uh, new discoveries. The laws of physics break down that they have to keep being expanded or rethought and people are too stuck in their own mindset to do it. 100%. Yeah. There are many things we don't understand. We don't know what happened before the Big Bang, you know, before the universe started the way we see it. We don't understand what is the dark matter, most of the matter in the universe. We don't know what it is. Uh, we call it dark matter just for a lack of a better uh, understanding. Uh, and then um, uh, there is, for example, a question about what's in the middle of a black hole that we don't know the answer to. And there are lots of fundamental questions uh, to which we don't know the answer. And it's, you know, it's possible that they know the answer. And, and what we will meet, the encounter that we will have would represent for us something magical because they are far more advanced than we are. And, you know, I wrote um, uh, a Scientific American article talking about the possibility that they might even be able to produce a baby universe. And, um, I mean, meeting them uh, or meeting some technological equipment that was developed by another civilization that is far more advanced than we are uh, may look like... Uh, an approximation to God, you know, because it will, those things that they developed could be, uh, could be for us like magic. They, they uh, could produce uh, in principle things that we attributed to God. They, they could, for example, their technologies could have produced life, could have produced a baby universe, things that are mentioned in religious uh, scripts. And so my point of view is we should stay modest and just look at the evidence, basically collect as much data in the sky as possible. Now, my friends, they say, uh, no, until you show us uh, extraordinary evidence, we, we, we do not want to fund this search because it's speculative. And my point is, first of all, we already funded for 40 years the search for dark matter, uh, for specific types of dark matter, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, didn't find anything. That was part of the mainstream. So if we invest in searching for technological relics to which there is some hints, you know, there, there was a report from the director of national intelligence to Congress on the 25th of June, uh, talking about objects whose nature is unclear. There was Oumuamua, this object, in, first interstellar object that looked very weird. I'm saying we should examine the sky and see if there are objects. We haven't done that. There was no funding to that. And if we invest hundreds of millions of dollars in this search and we don't find anything for 40 years, we would be at exactly the same point as the search for dark matter is right now. Yeah. So how can that be mainstream and the other thing is speculative and sh we shouldn't even discuss it? Mm -hmm. Given the fact that the public is extremely interested in this question and it would have a huge impact on society. To me, it, it, it's just really strange to see the situation right now. And my hope is that, you know, with my advocacy, I will be able to bring it into the mainstream. Uh, and, you know, you, you may ask, how is it that I was willing to face all this scrutiny and pushback and so forth? Well, the truth is that a few years ago, my both my parents passed away. And at that point, you know, it became obvious to me that, you know, we live for very a very short time. And um, we better not put makeup and so that it makes us look better and, and um, you know, rather than maintain our authenticity. And uh, to me, you know, the, there are some basic questions like, uh, are we alone, which we must address, you know, that we, we cannot just pretend that it's not, it's a question for which we need extraordinary evidence before we even discuss it. And, and you know, um, the, the point is that 
um, a lot of people live their life with a question like that, um, that they say, okay, let's postpone it to the future, you know, and then they die just like a pomegranate, um, you know, uh, uh, full of seeds that were never planted. Pomegranate, yeah. Pomegranate. Uh, And uh, uh, my point is, you know, all these hopes to uh, all of our uh, uh, wishes that were never realized during our life get buried in the ground, right? So my point is, let's think about space. (laughs) Let's look up. And then find our future in space rather than bury everything that we really care about with us, with our bodies when we end our life. And so the point is, um, you know, space is vast. What you see are, for example, you see Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, uh, you know, using their wealth to lift their body by 1% of the earth radius. You know, that's what they did recently over the summer. And they're very proud of themselves. My point is, you know, bragging or showing off in space is an oxymoron. You can't just be proud of yourself because you lifted your body by 1% of the earth radius because, you know, the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the earth radius. It's huge. And, uh, you know, maybe if you cross the galaxy, you can say, okay, you know, I, I achieved something really significant. So my point is, we should approach space with a modest perspective, not brag. Uh, I can give you another example. We sent um, on the New Horizons mission that went to Pluto, mm-hmm. we put the ashes, 30 grams, um, one ounce of the ashes of Clyde Tambow, the guy that discovered Pluto, were put on the New Horizons spacecraft. Oh, that's so that's what NASA did. Now, this makes no sense whatsoever because what are ashes? Ashes are burnt up DNA. So you take the genetic information of Clyde Tambow that you want to commemorate. Then you burn up all the information. You make the ashes. Now, these ashes are no different from the ashes of a cigarette. Mm-hmm. You know, So you put something that has no content, no information content on a spacecraft. Now, if extraterrestrials would find that, you know, it would be really embarrassing because they would recognize a ritual that we do that makes no sense, which is to commemorate a person by erasing the genetic information about that person. It would make much more sense. <laughs> I've, never, I've never thought about it. I've never thought about it. I thought it was kind of cool. I thought, I said, that's kind of sweet. They sent the dude that discovered I never. I've never thought about it from your <laughs> well, point of view. It would make much more sense to take the genetic information and, and put it in electronic form, you know, on a disc or something, on mm-hmm. the spacecraft so that they can reconstruct that person or take a stem cell and put it. Instead, we sent, we burned up the, the information and then we send it as if we celebrate uh, the discovery of this person. So, you know, I would much rather now, you know, given that we did that already, we need to develop a much faster spacecraft that will, uh, you know, go in front of New Horizons so that the, a- anyone out there will, will realize that we are actually smarter than that. You know? 100%. And I want to use this because we are... We're having a lot of fun. We're going all over the place, and I love it. But I want to bring it back to Omu. Ugh, I'm going to keep. I keep mispronounce Omuamua, and I want to see when you discovered it. What did you find peculiar about it, and what made you think that this is something completely different than an asteroid? Just for our listeners that aren't familiar with the story, right? So this was the first object that came from outside the solar system that we discovered near Earth. And we knew that it came from outside because it moved too fast to be bound to the sun. And uh, I didn't have an agenda about it. I very much would have preferred that it would have been a rock because I wrote, actually, I wrote the first art, uh, paper, scientific paper, uh, basically forecasting how many rocks we should see from other stars in our vicinity. So. I expected it to be a rock that was ejected from another star, but then it started looking weirder and weirder as time went on. Uh, First of all, it didn't have any cometary tail. There was no dust or gas around it. Um, We couldn't see it. And also the Spitzer Space Telescope put very tight limits on any carbon-based molecule. So it was definitely not a comet. A comet is a a rock uh, that is covered with ice that 
gets warmed up when it comes close to the sun, so the ice evaporates, you get this cometary tail. There was nothing of that type, so it was definitely not a comet. And then as it was tumbling every eight hours, the amount of sunlight reflected from it changed by a factor of 10. And that meant that the object has a very extreme shape. And the best fit to the variation of light was that of a flat object, a pancake-like object, which again is very unusual. And then it exhibited an excess push away from the sun. Uh, because and, and, and that push could not have been explained by cometary evaporation, by the rocket effect pushing it. So the only way I could explain it was the reflection of sunlight from its surface. And actually, a year ago, there was another object discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii that discovered Oumuamua. And by the way, Oumuamua means a scout in the Hawaiian language. Ooh, like uh, so the same, the same telescope that discovered Oumuamua discovered another object near Earth uh, that exhibited an excess push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, no cometary tail, so exactly the same qualities. And then the astronomers, within a few weeks, realized it actually came from Earth based on its trajectory. And it's a rocket booster that was launched in 1966. It was given the name 2020 SO before that was realized. And that illustrates two things. One, that uh, an artificial object that we produced, we know it for sure, behaved in ways that resemble Oumuamua. There was no cometary tail, and yet uh, there was a push of the object away from the sun by reflection of sunlight. And the second is, I mean, this was a very thin object. It was not designed for the purpose of being pushed by sunlight, but it was just thin. And presumably Oumuamua was similar, but we know that we produced 2020 SO. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? And, and of course, we didn't get enough data about it. Um, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words. Uh, the number of words in my book, uh, Extraterrestrial, that I published, I wouldn't write the book if we had an image, a megapixel image of this object. Yeah, and it's a, it's a like a cigar-shaped object, correct? That's, that's uh, Well, no, so it's cigar-shaped when you look at it on the sky. So imagine a piece of paper. So if the piece of paper is tumbling then uh, when you look at it projected along your line of sight, it looks mm -hmm. like a cigar when, it, when it's sideways, the piece okay. of paper. Is but in reality, it was flat. That was the best. At the 90% confidence, that was the best fit to the variation of light. It's a, in, 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 so it's flat and it's accelerating. Yeah. And that's what right. was, it was accelerating past the earth. No, no commentary tail. And so my next question is, do we know where it's at now? Like, do or is it is it left? Do, are we still able to track this thing? It will take it ten thousand years to leave the solar system. Okay, so we're still uh, watching it. Big, uh, yeah, but we cannot see it because it's a million times fainter than it was close to the sun by now, and um, we cannot uh, chase it because it moves faster than any chemical rocket that that we have and so but the key is to find more objects like it you know when i go to the kitchen i usually get alarmed when i see an ant mm -hmm. because there must be many more ants out there so in much the <laughs> same way there should be more objects like it and and in fact you know a few months ago i established the galileo project um uh, a few um, multi-billionaires came to the porch of my home and uh, asked me questions about my book and they were inspired by the vision and together with one of them frank laukian uh, uh, i decided to establish uh, the galileo project which has two goals one is to look for objects like Oumuamua and then study them much more carefully take an image if possible uh, yeah. and the second uh, part of this galileo project is to look for unidentified aerial phenomena here on Earth, you know, close to Earth, uh, using new telescope systems and um, uncover the nature of these unidentified uh, objects. Basically, identify the unidentified. And, uh, and you know, we, I, I received about $2 million within a few weeks in July and established this project. By now, there are uh, almost 100 people involved in it. And uh, it's the first scientific project. There are excellent scientists, mostly astronomers, 
Uh, it's the first time that scientists come together to collect scientific data and use a rigorous scientific approach to the study of unidentified aerial phenomena, for example. And that's a milestone. And uh, by the way, over the past few days, I, I, I get a, a, a flood of requests from people interested in contributing to the project in terms of their expertise. And, um, and my goal is, again, to bring this subject to the mainstream of the scientific uh, community. And, uh, you know, I'm getting funded by money that was not used for science before. These are private sector donors that are excited, mostly high-tech people excited about the vision in my book. And they gave me money. And, and there, are, there, is a, uh, there are lots of young people very excited about the subject. And really the, the acidic uh, uh, atmosphere, you know, the, the fact that there was ridicule and stigma on discussions on this topic, that's what prevented young people from entering because, you know, everyone cares about this question. Yeah, I think everyone does care, and and you know, if you're a millennial like myself, you grew up watching great science fiction. I know you. I know I, from your book, you hate science fiction, especially if it violates the laws of physics. <laughs> I'm not as smart as you, so I love it all. But uh, uh, you know that my curiosity has always been just it's been out there. If you if you go out in the middle of nowhere, like I was in. Um, the Mount Hood National Forest, you know, not a lot of light pollution. I was just looking up at the stars and just, you feel so small and it's never made sense to me. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that don't make, like the big bang doesn't make sense to me either. I'm like, that just seems ridiculous, but I mean, (laughs) it does. It's a little out there. Um, but, um, It just we, we don't know what happened before, by the way. That's one of the open questions. Yes, if, exactly. If you do uh, establish contact, that's one of the first questions I want to ask. You know, do you know what was there before the Big Bang? That's because that's that's always it's like it's, it's like science and religion. There's these two things. Like you know, you've got the idea of God and that He's always been here. And I'm like, well, that sounds kind of ridiculous to me. And then on the scientific side, there was a Big Bang, and from every the universe was the size of a pinprick, and then it exploded, and there was all. And I was like, that's sounds just as equally ridiculous to me as well so well, I'm, i, I think by, by the way uh, there is a connection between religion and science uh, in the sense that you know it's possible that what we find here on earth uh, can be created in the laboratory of a very advanced civilization and and then you know it will be what we call god in a sense because they are much more capable than us and absolutely and uh, so, you know, that, that is one way to marry um, science and technology, a, a very advanced level of science and technology, much more than we possess, with uh, the philosophy of religion. And, uh, you know, perhaps what we call God is an approximation to a very advanced scientific civilization. And I, I, I'm with you. I wanted to, there's a few things I want to get to. I definitely... Um, Loved that you put panspermia in your book. That's something I don't. Are you familiar with uh, Terence McKenna by chance? Uh, he's no. he's just, okay. He's he's a crazy. He did. He's like a psychedelic explorer. Did a bunch of drugs and like uh, he. Had, okay. But he had to listen. He's a crazy man. But he had some very interesting thoughts. And one of his his thoughts. I'm going to butcher this. It's basically he's like the Earth to him. He's like there are two choices for humanity. One is that we are become stewards of the earth, stop messing it up with polluting it and become masters. The other is we destroy it. And the, he, we we use the earth as an egg to spread throughout the galaxy. And those are the two choices we have. And I kind of, um, he also, I think there was this, another theory he had, and this couldn't be him. It might not be him, but um, I think it's like the theory of like mushrooms, right? He thinks that since they're a fungus that maybe some of them survived through an asteroid crashed into the earth and were able to spread and they've been spreading through the universe like that, or, you know, potentially bacteria there's, there's, I believe Martian rocks that we've found in Antarctica that have never reached a, I'm losing it right here, but they they haven't been, um, heated by more than 40 degrees yeah yes exactly i mean both ideas that you mentioned that that um, you know we uh, humanity should aspire 
to not to keep all its eggs in one basket and basically spread them. And the second is that nature itself could have spread life, uh, uh, you know, through rocks that uh, kept bacteria or, or fungus or whatever uh, alive uh, on the journey and, and, and spread them from one planet to another. Both of the these ideas I, I completely agree with. And, uh, um, you know, uh, so this demonstrates the point that, um, you know, uh, people that do not have training in science could come across the correct ideas. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, scientists, scientists that have training in science can go along, uh, you know, can take the wrong exits in the highway, go into dead alleys and, and just uh, make them sort of popular among themselves, but they have no relevance to society or to, they, they do not describe reality. So, so both, both uh, situations are right. That, and so therefore, uh, getting trained uh, does not necessarily bring you to the right spot. What you need is common sense, I think. That, yeah, that is the most important. It, exactly. But it makes a lot of sense, like especially the whole idea of, of, of panspermia. That's the one I'm like the most drawn to because who are we to say, like we, we have ecosystems on our planet. Who's not to say that the entire universe is one giant ecosystem of things, right? Or, or let's, I'm going to just, in a way that I can understand it, a, a, like a giant organism or eco, yeah, those types of things where you have, you have destruction of stars and they explode and there might be bacteria on them. And then it goes to another, it goes to another planet or another world and it, and it, 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 it figures out a way to survive. It adapts or it dies. And then it, it, it creates multi-celled organisms and things keep advancing. Like who's not to say the universe has nothing but time. That's something yeah. that we don't understand. It's concept. That's definitely pos possible. And but one thing to keep in mind is that distances are vast. And yes. Even you know if you use the fastest moving uh, uh, mediator, the messenger, uh, which is light. That that's the fastest messenger you can use. It takes tens of thousands of years for light to to traverse just the Milky Way galaxy. And it takes ten, you know, ten billion years to go across the universe. So, so these are very long time scales, and the distances are huge. So, the point is, you know, there is this uh, uh, paradox that Enrico Fermi, a very famous uh, physicist, Fermi uh, paradox. Yeah, uh, he went to lunch at Los Alamos and said uh, they were talking about extraterrestrials, and he said, "Okay, well, it makes sense. Maybe they are out there, but uh, if they are out there, where is everybody?" He said, yep. where is everybody? And since then, people said, okay, well, where is everybody? We don't see them, therefore they don't exist. Well, it's just like, you know, uh, sitting on the sofa at home and saying, I don't hear a knock on my door, therefore I don't have neighbors. Like, okay, well, they might not be knocking on your door right now, but you definitely have neighbors, uh, you know, uh, uh, because the point is that recorded history is only 10,000 years old. And that's one millionth of the age of the Earth. So if they visited us, let's say, a million years ago, we would not know about it. If they visited us a billion years ago, they were only bacteria. They'd never they've never written a document that we can... They didn't write us a memo, okay? Mm -hmm. Someone visited us. So the point is, just asking what Fermi asked, which is, you know, modern science existed for several decades. We haven't seen anything. That's minuscule in terms of the window of time that we are looking. And actually, we didn't look very carefully. Like, for example, only 2017, the first object from outside the solar system was spotted near Earth. Just think about it. It's only five years ago. And uh, how dare we say that we don't have visitors if we are not able to find them like this was an object the size of a football field that reflected sunlight for the first time we were able to find it within the earth's orbit around the sun in 2017 okay that was the first um, case so fermi you know like almost 70 years earlier said where is everybody well Im imagine that those things were passing through the solar system we just didn't find them because there was no telescope surveying the sky mm -hmm. and Fermi can ask whatever he wants to ask. But the answer is 
sorry, you didn't build a good enough telescope to find those things. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of, uh, there was a tale about, uh, a story about a fisherman. Uh, a fisherman went to sea and said, he came back after several months and said, I discovered the new law of nature. The new law is all fish are bigger than two inches. That's the a law of nature. So someone asked him, what is the size of the holes in your fishing net? And he said, two inches. <laughs> so that, that is the origin of this law that he discovered. <laughs> all the small fish went through the holes. Yep. And my point is, if Fermi didn't have Panstar's telescope, obviously he would say, where is everybody? But once we constructed Panstar's, we discovered something. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you, you also have the, the disclosure of the Pentagon, um, those papers, and, and, and you have these incidents that keep happening, and, and now we're starting to study. And this is something that I'm very, like, so happy that you're, you've championing, championing this is because we need more data, and we need it to be open to the public and we need scientists to talk to each other, talk to each other. One of the things that like, I I like to think about and and I admire about you the most is you have an open mind. The mind is like a parachute. It only works if it's open hundred percent. You have to have an open mind for all these possibilities. And you, in in a lot of, and and I've, I've been like this in my life. If I get so concentrated on what's right, then I'm, I'm missing a completely different perspective of, of what could, or uh, of a solution, right? That could just be to the left or to the right of me, but I keep looking straight ahead. Um, The way I see myself is slightly differently. I see myself as this kid that was saying the emperor has no clothes. Basically, I I talk about what I see and I I have no reservations about, you know, things that look unusual. And I just say that they look unusual. And now my colleagues say, oh, Oumuamua was natural. But then when they try to explain those anomalies that I described, they always refer to something that we have never seen before, like a chunk of frozen hydrogen, a chunk of frozen nitrogen. And my point is that this resembles, you know, a caveman finding a cell phone and then saying, you know, the cell phone is just a rock of a type that I've never seen before. (laughs) And uh, of course, if he throws the cell phone, then that would be the end of it. And he would say there is no extraordinary evidence. Where is everybody? But if he looks at the cell phone and presses a button, uh, he would realize that it records his voice, presses another button, he records his image, and then he will learn that it's not a rock. So my point is, very t- very often in life, you know, you have self-fulfilling prophecies. If you say, you know, Oumuamua is a natural object, period. I, you know, I don't want to discuss anything else. And by the way, I don't want to invest any funds in searching for unusual objects. Then you will not find them. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a circular argument saying, you know, we don't have any mail in our mailbox and not even going to the mailbox to check, you know, that it's a self. And unfortunately, that's exactly what the philosophers did during the days of Galileo. They said the sun moves around the earth and they didn't bother to check. They didn't want to check by looking through Galileo's telescope. Yep. And what a time, what a time it is for us to be alive, right? Where, where we find ourselves in a very similar situation, you in, in particular, right? In a very uh, similar situation. And the, the, my hope is that the realization and the discovery that you are indeed correct and that we are not alone and we can get that verified could potentially usher us into a completely new era of understanding and an era of exploration. Uh, I, I like to think of Robert Oppenheimer at this point, because this is one of the, I think that a, a pretty good central message in your book is that we have to, and, and, he, and he echoed this after um, the atomic weapons, we have to start thinking in a different way. We have to evolve our thinking because we have these weapons of mass destruction now. And yes. we cannot continue the same territorial disputes, the same bullshit that we've been doing forever. It has to stop. And right. if we're ever going to get off of this rock and advance and become a seafar- a spacefaring race civilization, right? We've got to start thinking bigger. And yeah. we have got to start working together. And we've got to stop being scared of each other. We've got to stop wasting money. And we've got to start pushing the, bal- the, the boundaries of science in order to get there. Yeah. So my, my take from human history, you know, when I look at human history, 
what I see most of the time are groups of people trying to feel superior relative to other people, you know. And, uh, you know, the best example is the Second World War, where the the Nazi regime uh, triggered the death of uh, 75 million people. That was 3% of the world population in 1940. It's 20 times more than COVID-19 uh, caused, you know, in terms of the, the death toll. So just mm-hmm. think about it, 20 times more than COVID-19. That's insane. Uh, just by a group of people deciding to feel superior relative to other people. You know, that makes no sense whatsoever. Now, if what is my hope? My hope is if we find a smarter kid on the cosmic block, if we find another species that is far more advanced than we are, then all of our differences would look meaningless. You know, all these... Um, reasons that people uh, invented for saying that they are superior relative to others. All of these things would look completely meaningless. And my hope is that at that point, you know, we will treat each other with respect as equal members of the human species. We will work together. That's really my hope. It will change the perspective. And as you said, you know, we are wasting a lot of time fighting each other and you know, all of this would make very little sense if we find a smarter kid on the block. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be, what is it? Ronald? Is it Reagan that said the only thing that would unite us would be if we were invaded by, that's a terrible <laughs> Ronald Reagan impression, but <laughs> aliens, you know? So I, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you. What do you, I do have one, another question. I've got billions of them, but, um, what do you say to the people that think that this is a piece of a planet flying through or, or, uh, a piece of nitrogen ice? Like that's just, what do you, what do you say to the detractors? Yeah, so for each of these possibilities, there is a problem. Um, so there was a suggestion that maybe, if, uh, maybe this object was a cloud of dust particles, very loosely bound, a hundred times less dense than air. The problem with that is when it gets close to the sun, it gets heated by hundreds of degrees and will not maintain its integrity. Mm-hmm. Then there was a suggestion that it's a piece of a planet, as you said, that was broke, broken off when uh, the planet passed close to a star. And the problem is that you o- often get from such uh, circumstances, you get um, cigar-shaped objects, not pancake-shaped objects. So that's the problem of that. The, and also the chance of that happening is very small. You need to pass really close to a star. And most of the planets or objects do not pass close to a star. Then there was a suggestion, maybe it's a, a chunk of frozen hydrogen, and then you can't see the hydrogen when it evaporates. And so it's, it's a comet, but made of pure hydrogen. And the problem with that is hydrogen evaporates very quickly, so it wouldn't survive the journey through interstellar space. We actually wrote a paper showing that. And uh, then there was a suggestion that maybe it's a nitrogen iceberg, that a chunk of frozen nitrogen that was chipped off the surface of a planet like Pluto. And the problem with that uh, suggestion is that that there is not enough nitrogen in the Milky Way galaxy. Again, we wrote a paper that was accepted for publication showing that the mass budget, that you just don't have enough nitrogen to make enough chips such that one of them would be Oumuamua. And actually, the advoc- some of the advocates of these models admit that these models have serious difficulties. But my point is, all of them consider something that we have never seen before. And uh, if we consider something that we have never seen before, then why not consider also an artificial origin? You know, just like in the in the story about the caveman. Yep, 100%. And Occam's razor, too. It's, it's almost a, the, the most likely solution, right, is is that, especially with its gaining speed. And especially with the 2020 SO, this, this object that was discovered a year ago by the same telescope and exhibited an excess push by reflecting sunlight with no cometary tail, turned out to be an object that we produced. Exactly. So, We've yeah, got so, a few examples, two two sets of data right now. Yeah, from the um, same so, yeah. Yeah. I completely understand. So wh- I mean, I want to be respectful of your time, so I want you to to tell people where they I don't, you're not on social media, are you? Good for you. Oh. No, Good I, for you. I promised uh, my wife when we got married, she she insisted that uh, I will not have any social media footprint and I agreed. And now I can see her wisdom. Uh, except Someone uh, pointed out to me um, on Twitter that uh, that um, there was um, 
a, a science reporter that uh, wrote that his wife has a crush on a scientist named Avi Loeb that she <laughs> thinks is uh, a sexier version of Anthony Fauci. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mentioned to my good. wife, so I went to my wife and I said, look, uh, look what was said about me. And my wife said, uh, oh, uh, that's a very low bar. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know uh, she always keeps things in perspective yeah, she she knocked you down a peg didn't she oh boy <laughs> no no uh, I mean, uh, she may be right but anyway. <laughs> so but the, your book where can people buy the book is it do you, are you doing working on any more books or yeah so uh, the book is extraterrestrial and it's available uh, everywhere um where books are sold and it's also translated to 25 languages by now um, and yes, I'm working on a new book. Um, uh, I started uh, recently and um, hopefully I'll complete it within a year. That's the hope. And um, uh, yeah, it will follow on the messages that we discussed, but they will offer some, some new material. And I, I will be glad to speak with you again once the book comes out. I would love that. Yeah. So I would, I would definitely, I would love to have you on again. You got to keep me posted on any developments that, that you that you're seeing in the sky. You've got better eyes than I do, but I'm, I'll keep looking up, but you keep me well, posted we, on we use telescopes, not people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Uh, keep up um, um, with any news from the Galileo project. We, we I will. There's something. Yeah, I will. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. 